Well, as we can tell from the catechism question today and the answer, which was the entire Apostles' Creed, what's going to happen today is a 12-part series, one hour per session. We'll break at six for lunch, and then we'll get back together. No, just, um, it, you know, one of the things that's amazing, uh, uh, the question, what, what do we believe by true faith? And, uh, you know, as, as, we, as I was reading and studying, I go, man, the sky's the limit for me today. I can, I can just pick up on anywhere. And so I just want to just begin by reminding us last week that, that uh, we define true, and I'll put in parentheses, uh, saving faith as trusting all that God promises to be to us in Christ Jesus. So all of God's promises, God has fulfilled and continues to fulfill even to this day. And we just need to understand that and recognize that, live that, uh, cling to that, that God, that his promises uh, to be to us, um, what he has promised will happen in Christ Jesus. But that really forces me to ask another question. And that question is, so then what do we believe by faith, by true faith? What do we believe? Um, if we define faith, then we need to ask the question, what do we believe? And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus in on one particular area. The very simple but complex answer is this. Everything taught to us in the gospel. What do we believe? Uh, what do we believe by true faith? Everything taught to us in the gospel. And Jesus summates this idea, this thought, in John chapter 17, verse 3, when he says this, and this is eternal life. Catch what I'm going to say, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's the gospel. That is what we believe. Everything is summated in this. Everything taught to us in the gospel. Jesus Christ summates it this way, and this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Um, one of my favorite authors is uh, J.I. Packard. And uh, not easy read sometimes, but he wrote a, an amazing book years ago called Knowing God. And one of the, in one of the chapters, uh, he, he opens the chapter uh, in this book by asking several questions. And here they are. And here's the questions. What were we made for? for? To know God. What should our aim in life be? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? The knowledge of God. Amen? That's it. God himself said this in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the strong man boast in his strength or the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows God. If knowing and fearing God is the beginning of wisdom and all the other things that we have come to believe within that, here's my question for us today. Here's, Here's something that I think we need to wrestle with. What does it mean to know God? And then I'm going to ask another question, and that is this. What makes it so difficult? What does it mean to know God? And secondly, then, 
what, are, what makes it so difficult for us to actually do that? So first, knowing God is a, is a matter of personal dealing. It is, a, it is uh, in uh, all direct relationships uh, with people. In fact, knowing God is like knowing a person. Okay? It's, it takes a relationship. So knowing God is, is, is uh, more than just knowing about him. I mean, I know people, but then there are other people that I really know. I know about some people, but there are other people that I really know. So knowing God is more than just knowing about him. It is a matter of relating with him as he opens up to you and being dealt with by him as he takes time to know you. So there's this interpersonal relationship that, that is taking place between you and I and, and, and us and God. And there's a passage that I would like you to turn to in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. And I want you to turn there because I am going to read this in the Amplified Version today. All right? Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. And this is the Apostle Paul expressing his desire to know Christ, to know God, if you will. And it's just an amazing uh, piece. So I'm going to read it in the uh, Amplified Version. And so Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 says this, For my determined purpose is that I may know him. In other words, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly. And that I may in that way, in in, in that same way, come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection, which, in the Amplified, is which it exerts over believers, and that I may share his suffering as to be continually transformed, again in the Amplified, in spirit into his likeness, even into his death. It's just an amazing expression that the Apostle Paul, when he has desired to know God, and he knows God through Jesus Christ, and he says, I want to know him. And I'm just going to add some things here. How do we know him? By keeping his commandments, by following him, by obeying him, by trusting him. And I also want to model the power outflowing from his resurrection, the resurrection power in me. And how do we do that? Folks, we do that by surrendering to the Holy Spirit filling in our life every day. It's not something that you have to be a pastor or, a, or a, a, a writer or whatever to be filled with this power of God's Spirit in us. His resurrection power is available to every one of us each and every day of our lives. And I certainly want to be continually transformed into His likeness, which requires accepting my share of suffering in this life. And how do we do that? We, in, in, our, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of hardships, growing and trusting through hardship. Romans chapter 5 speaks about that, that idea of growing through hardship. But here's the rub. I'm just going to give some, some perspective here. Here's the rub in, that we are facing in our 21st century form of Christianity. And I, and I just want you to know that, that as we speak about all these things that we say we believe in, one of the things that we also need to understand is that there is an opposite voice, if you will. There is another message in our world that is anti-God, that is anti-need for God. And it is rampant, and we would like to say that it doesn't exist in the church, but it does. 
it has infiltrated. It, it, is, it, it permeates into our very being because we see it in our practices sometimes. So here's, here's the rub as we're coming to know God personally. It's, it's called autonomy. And autonomy says, um, I have the right to do what I want to do when I want to do it. That's autonomy. This is not anything new. This happened right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden when Satan lied to Adam and Eve and said, if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. Basically, he was saying, you don't need God to exist. You don't need God to have what you want. In fact, you can have it all without God. So this message has been a message that's been around since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. So it's not new. But in a culture, and I just want you to understand where I'm coming from this morning, in a culture that hardly believes that God even exists, cares, provides, or protects, our pursuit of self has overridden our awe of God and sets an agenda for our own thoughts and our own desires, our own choices, and our own behavior. So that's the battle. That's the tension between what we say we believe and what is actually happening in our hearts and lives every day. That's the tension of our culture today that we, that we live in. So autonomy says, I don't need anyone, including God, and I certainly don't trust anyone else but self, which leaves any pursuit of knowing God empty and lacking. It is something that we vainly try to fill in one hour on a Sunday morning but it is competing against the cultural messages that are far, far too strong and far, far too rampant. Folks, that is the battle that, that we deal with and that we wrestle with. And, and so along with that, a self, a, a, that autonomy is self-focus, and self-focus causes us to say that we are at the center of our world, that it is right to live for ourselves and to do what brings us happiness and none of these views uh, uh, or practices encourages what the Apostle Paul was expressing in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. And let me just read it to you one more time. For I, my determined purpose is that I may know him, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly that I, may, uh, that I may in that same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection, which, exerts, uh, which it exerts over believers, and that I may also share his sufferings as to be continually transformed in spirit into the likeness, even into his death. Folks, that's where we, that's where we want to be. That's what we say we believe. But that is the, the pressure and the... the the, uh, the, the wrestle that is happening in our lives every day. There is a cultural message that is completely anti-God. And it's not just out there. It is something that you and I wrestle with, even in our own lives, mainly because of sin in us. So the second thing in knowing God, God is, knowing God is a matter of personal involvement uh, that is in our mind and will and spirit. And feeling uh, to get to know another person, you have to commit yourself to his company 
and his interests and to be ready to identify yourself with, with his concerns or desires and or desires. So knowing God is knowing. What does God want? What does God love? What does God hate? What are, it's knowing God to that level. Knowing God at that level. Without uh, this, our relationship with God can, can be very superficial and, and, and flavorless at best. I think of the, the uh, psalm, Psalm 34, verse 8, says this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Have you ever really wondered about that verse? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to compare God to a maple bar, but, you know, I mean, if there's a maple bar, I want to taste it. I know it's good. I just want to taste it and see that it's good. Okay, but but to 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 really, for for David, the psalmist, to to use these, these words, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. To taste is to try a mouthful of something with the view of appreciating its flavor. And so as you compare that with what the Apostle Paul wrote in, in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that he may know Christ to this level, and then David saying, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It is uh, appreciating the flavor and the relationship that God gives us. Relationship then is something that we experience. It's not just something that we know and understand intellectually, but it's something that we experience. And how do we experience it? By abiding. In John chapter 15, it says, If you abide in me, I will abide in you. What does that mean? If you stay connected to me, I will stay connected to you. You are the vine. I um, I am the vine. You are the branches. There, there is a correlationship between the branch staying connected to its power source. But there's an experience there. There is, there is energy and nutrients that flow from the vine to the branch as we experience that. So we, we abide, we stay connected, we depend, we trust, we rely on, we obey His ways and His desires. That is experiencing God. You know, the emotional side of experiencing God, I, I know a lot of times even the churches, well, we kind of downplay that for fear of uh, encouraging our cultures bent towards self-absorption. And self-absorption or, or self-sufficiency says, I have everything I need in myself and I don't need to depend on or submit to anyone else. That is the downfall in our culture. That is the downfall. I, you know, it's amazing. Guys, you'll understand what I'm going to say. You're in the middle of a major project and someone says, do you need any help? What's your first answer? No. What are you going to say? I did that on purpose because I know the women would say no for me. Because isn't it amazing that even in the sense of needing help, we just automatically say no. Why? Because we're too prideful to admit that we can't do it. But I'm telling you, I learned a valuable lesson one time when Teresa and I bought this pellet stove and we had like five steps to get into our house and it got delivered to our house and we got it there. I can't remember how we got it there. but And then someone said, do you need any help? I go, no, Teresa will help me. That didn't work. She called help. She called for help and three guys came and helped me get it into the house. You know, so it's, it's amazing, this idea of self-sufficiency that just says, I don't need, um, I, don't, I have everything I need in myself, and I don't need, and I will not depend or submit to anybody else. 
That's the battle that we live in. There is far, far too much emphasis, if you will, in our culture that if God really does exist, He exists really only for this purpose, for my own comfort, my own happiness, and my own satisfaction rather than for His glory. And folks, that is a tension that you and I wrestle with every day. But Scripture is charged with emotional expressions of the existence of God's relationship to man. Some of them are positive and some of them are negative. I, I think of, of uh, Adam and Eve in the garden and they had just partaken of the fruit. They understand that they're naked. God comes down to the garden uh, to walk with them in the cool of the evening. And, and he calls out to God. He calls out to Adam. And he says, Adam, where are you? God knew where he was. You ever read that and just think about that? God called, Adam, where are you? This is not hide and seek. Okay, God knew exactly where Adam was. The creator of heaven and earth, the person, the, the, the God who had that can see everything and knows everything, knows where Adam is standing, but he offers grace to Adam. He says, he gives Adam a chance to respond. And Adam says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. All right? You always wonder what that dialogue would have been like if he would have gone on from there and said, and I'm really sorry that I partook of the fruit. But that's not what he did. In that moment of believing that Adam and Eve no longer needed to depend on God or trust in him as their only source of wisdom and knowledge, God's normal appearance in the garden, his relationship with man in the garden was turned upside down. Because man was now separated from God. His fellowship had been broken. So that's one, that's a, some emotional, some fear and, and some other experience, uh, emotional experiences. That, But on the flip side, remember uh, Mary, the, the, the mother of Jesus, her response to God's messenger, the angel, at the moment that she uh, was told that she was going to have a son whose name was going to be Emmanuel, God with us. I love Mary's response. I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled in me. So you have these two polar opposite responses, experiences with God that took place. And in this context, Mary's relationship with God was strengthened by her dependency and her surrender to his will. So on one hand, you have the fighting of God's will and fighting of God's desire, fighting of God's plan. On the other, you have this total surrender and dependency on his will. So again, we need to understand that, that knowing God is a matter of personal involvement. It is a matter of mind, a matter of will, and a, ma a matter of feeling, of emotion. This makes the third component of knowing God vital. And I just want us to, to come to, to grips with this. Uh, for knowing God is truly a matter of His grace and His grace alone. Knowing God is a matter of His grace, God's grace, and His grace alone. In other words, our relationship with, with God is his initiative from beginning to end. And that is just something that, for me, is a hallelujah. Amen? It's not about me. It's not what I've done. It's not what I've earned or what I think I deserve or whatever. It's, it's 
completely and solely based on God's initiative of his own grace towards me from beginning in. Since God is completely above us, and we have so completely forfeited all claims to his favor by our sin, here's what God does. God initiates the relationship with us. That is a hallelujah amen. That is just an amen. In other words, um, uh, we don't make friends with God. I just want you to understand that. We don't make friends with God. God makes friends with us and brings us into a place of knowing him and making his love known to us. Paul expresses this thought uh, of the priority of God's grace and just a piece out of Galatians chapter 4, verse 9. And it says this, and Paul is writing to the church at Galatians. He says, now that you have come to know God, and then it's like he's writing away, and all of a sudden he just stops, or he says, or rather to be known by God. You catch that? Now that you've come to know God, and oh, by the way, the only reason you know God is because you have been known by him. It's not because of what you've done or what I've done or what we can do. Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. So the qualifying clause to be known by God reminds us that, that God's grace comes first and remains the fundamental component of our relationship with him. It is his grace alone that makes our relationship a reality. And that is so important that we just need to, uh, we just need to bathe in that and revel in that, that fact that it is, it is the fundamental component of our relationship with him. Our knowing God is the result of his taking notice of, notice of us first. And we know him by faith because he first singled us out by grace. Folks, this is, this is simple to some respect, but it is so complex. So knowing points to God's initiative in loving and choosing and redeeming and calling and preserving and forgiving and being faithful. All of this is all known is all God's initiative. Listen to just some pieces of God expressing that initiative to different people in the scriptures. To Moses, the Lord said to him, you have found grace or favor in my sight, and I know you by name. What a blessing. Exodus chapter 33. Jeremiah writes the, records these words in Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you, Jeremiah, in the womb I knew you, and before you were born, I sanctified or consecrated you. I chose you. Jesus Christ said these words to his disciples. I am the good shepherd, and I know, uh, and I, uh, uh, I know my own, and my own know me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. John chapter 10, verses 14 and 27. So here God's knowledge of us implies some amazing things. It implies personal affection, redeeming action, covenant faithfulness, and providential watchfulness towards those who know him or towards those that he knows. 
So being known by God is the basis of our very salvation. And what matters supremely is not that we know God, but, but the larger truth is this. And the larger truth which underlies all that I'm talking about today is the fact that God knows you and he knows me. Amen? Here's some words from Scripture. That I, didn't, I didn't write the references down, but here's some things right from Scripture. Our names are graven on the palms of his hand. We are never out of his mind or thoughts. All our knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative of knowing us. We know him because he first knew us. He knows us as friends who loves us. He knows uh, there is no moment in our lives where, there, where his eye is off of us or that his attention is distracted from us. And there is no moment where his care for us falters. Folks, the scripture just goes on and on and on about God knowing us. And out of his knowing us, we then can come to know him. But again, I just want to share just a rub that we face in our, our culture. And the Apostle Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians. But um, it, it, here it is. It's, it's the foolishness and the message of our culture that our, uh, the foolishness and message that our culture rejects our, uh, uh, our, our, very, our, our basic nature as human beings. So in other words, our culture rejects who we are as human beings. And what do I mean by that? Here's the thing that, that, that needs to be injected back into our belief system. You and I were never created to be our own source of wisdom. We just weren't. We were not created to be our own source of wisdom. In fact, uh, we, were we were designed to be revelation receivers, word receivers, dependent on the truths of God or the truths of God's word to teach us. We are dependent on God. And my friends, so often in our culture, even in the Christian culture, we are trying to battle all the things that hit us in the face every day with an hour of church. And it's not enough. And even if you are one who is uh, in the Word on a daily basis for maybe an hour or whatever, I just want you to know that, that that hour plus an hour at church does not equal what you and I are bombarded with every single day. The messages, the false messages, the subtle messages from Satan himself, which basically just say that you don't need God. You don't need to depend on Him. You don't want God. And even as Christians, my friends, I cannot tell you the amount of times that I've sat in my office and heard people say, I feel so disconnected from God. Why? Because we're not depending on Him. We're not depending on His Word. Knowing God means being in His Word. Knowing God means being people of surrender and prayer and seeking Him out. God must initiate our knowing him because we are unable we are unable to do what he has ordained us to do folks we must understand that god must initiate in your life which means this at least in my perspective it just means this it's crying out and saying lord i need you i need you and i want you and i and i'm just surrendering to you and i Lord, as I spend time in your word, as I spend time in prayer, God, I just ask that you would fill in the gaps. Lord, teach me. 
It's like getting up and speaking. It's not me speaking. It's God speaking through me. And that is just something that is so refreshing and so freeing for me to know that, that if, I, if I thought that I had to get up here and do this in my own power, folks, I would have quit a long time ago. It is, and I'm not bragging of where I am with God because every day, even today, even this morning, I had to spend time with God. God, forgive me for the times that I have done the very things that I am preaching about today. That I have thought that I was too self-sufficient. That I was too self-focused. That I was not dependent. That I had to confess those things. That I sought for happiness and fulfillment in things rather than in God. Folks, it is a rub that, that is close to each and every one of us, but we were never created to be our own source of wisdom. We were designed to be revelation receivers dependent on the truths of God's word to teach us. And so God must initiate our knowing him because we are unable to do what he or what he has ordained, what he has designed us to do, and what he has designed us to be. This inability colors every situation and every relationship in our lives. Can I just give you a real simple example of this? Folks, I know in God's word that it tells me to love Teresa and to love her as Christ loved the church and gave up his life for her. I know in Ephesians chapter 5, it says that. I know that. Then why is it so hard for me to practice? Why is it so hard for me to submit? It doesn't matter. God didn't say that. Love your wife only if she's good to you or only if she's nice to you. Or only if she's not harsh to you or only if whatever. There's no onlys in that verse. The verse says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and Christ willingly submitted his life to the cross for you and me. And so the truth that God gives me is that I, as a husband, need to step up to the plate and do that and practice that with my wife, regardless of how she treats me. I'm going to tell you something I can't do that by myself. And neither can you, husbands or wives, or children, when it says, children, obey your, par your, your parents, for this is right. We can't do it. We, we are unable within ourselves to do this. And so part of knowing God is to being dependent upon Him and trusting His power and His Spirit that lives in us to fill in the gaps, to fill the, the hole so that we can do what God has called us to do. God must initiate not just our knowing Him, but then our dependence on Him and our trust in Him and our surrender to Him. And I just want to say this, surrender and trust must be daily, must be moment by moment. Because I'm like the Apostle Paul, I'm, I'm asking this question all the time. Why is it that I do the very thing that I shouldn't do? And, and why am I not doing the thing that I should do? Have you ever asked that question before? I'm asking that all the time. Well, what's the difference? Here's the, here's the answer. Paul gives it. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So knowing God is a point of surrender. So what is what do we believe by true faith? It is very simple and yet very complex. Everything taught to us in the gospel. Jesus summated it this way, and this is eternal life, that they know you. This is Christ's prayer to his Father in John 17, that they may know you, the one, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This scripture is not going to show up, but I just want to read it to you. Hebrews 11, 6. We're speaking about faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Folks, can I just tell you something? We live in a world culture today that does not believe that God exists. Can I just say, if we're expecting to go out there and tell people about a God who doesn't exist, can you tell me how far you're going to get with your dialogue? Folks, it really begins when you and I believe that God exists and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. That you and I live that way, that you and I see it because the culture we live in today is very experiential. They want to see that it's real. So do you and I believe that God exists? Do you and I believe that He rewards those who seek Him? And that when we see, when we experience that, when we live that, and people see that, as Jesus Christ said to his disciples, they will see your good works and not glorify you, but they will glorify the Father in heaven. Folks, that is the world that you and I live in today. So we say we believe, but knowing God really is initiated by him and for him. And you and I are called just to join that. You and I are called to join him in that process of knowing, of surrendering, of depending, of, of, of just clinging, abiding, staying connected. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the tr- only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Father, we come before you today and we thank you, Lord, that we can say that we believe in you that we believe that you exist, that we believe that you've created us, that, that we believe that it is your word and your wisdom that gives us instruction and knowledge to even know you. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have not left us alone, that you have not left us to, to somehow try to exist in this world by ourselves, but God, you gave us your son to die on a cross for our sins and he paid the price so that we might be made right with you. And then, Lord, you left your spirit, Lord, that lives in us and guides and directs and convicts and teaches. Lord, we thank you. God, we ask that we would become a group of people who really knows you as you initiate that knowledge, Father, in us and through us. 
God, we want to say thank you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. John, or Tom, will you come?